take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. That's this morning's scripture reading, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 17 of Jeremiah 18. If you don't have a Bible, then you can take one that's on the rack in front of you. You can find this passage on page 768. This fall, what we're doing in Jeremiah is we're asking ourselves where we can find hope in the midst of brokenness. And as we come to Jeremiah 18 in the overall narrative of, of what's going on here, what we have is the southern Jewish kingdom of Judah facing imminent invasion uh, from Babylon because of their persistent rebellion against God and their stubborn refusal to recognize him as the true king. And that's when God comes to Jeremiah here and proposes another field trip. He's done this with Jeremiah before. And this time he tells them, let's go to the workshop of a potter. And listen, this is Jeremiah 18, starting at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his own heart, his evil heart. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations. Who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Do its cool waters from distant shores ever cease to flow? Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways and in the ancient paths. They made them walk in bypaths and on roads not build up. Their land will be laid waste, an object of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. This is God's word. Now, let me ask you a, a, a question. When you think of God, what is the first image that comes to your mind? Right? What, do you, what do you think of when you conceive of God? Now, of, of course, in a sense, that's actually, that's actually not the right question to ask because because God is not, cannot be determined by what we think him to be. Right? Because a God like that, a God who is subject to our own creation, our own imagination, is, of course, 
by definition, not really God, right? right? Because if we define him, then of course, in that sense, we're God, wouldn't we be? No, if, if he were truly God, then he would need to reveal himself to us. He would need to come to us. And of course, that's what Christians believe the Bible to be. That's, that's, why, we, that's why we read it. It's why we study it. We believe that it is a record of God revealing himself to us. But what do you do when you come to a text like this? It's a problem that occurs throughout the Bible. But we see it pretty obviously here because here we have a God who seems very intent on meeting out justice. And, 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 and if we aren't careful, it, it falls right in line with a pretty common conception of God, image of God, that, that many people have. And that's, that's an image of a, of a mean old judge just sitting waiting to, to smite people. Right? The famous American poet of the early 20th century, Robinson Jeffers, grew up in a Christian home, a conservative Presbyterian home. But as he grew up, he rejected all of that. And, and that was, this was his view, that view of God as this judge just kind of waiting to smite people. This is what he wrote in one of his poems. God is a hawk gliding among the stars. If all the stars in the earth and the living flesh of the night that flows in between them and whatever is beyond them were that one bird, then he has a bloody beak and harsh talons. He pounces and tears. Now that's the problem we have. That image, that conception of God. When we, when we come to a metaphor like this of the, of the potter, is that yours? Is that your image of what God is like? If it's not yours, then it's certainly someone that you... Then you know. So let's, let's look at it closely. Let's kind of go through and take what I just read and look at it section by section. All right, first, we'll just look at the image itself of a potter and clay. And then think a little bit about the intended meaning of that image. All right, how is the potter and clay a metaphor for God and his people? And then we'll see how the people stubbornly resist that meaning and then finally, God's response to that resistance. Right? So if you like simple headings like me, that, that's, that's the image, the meaning, the resistance, and the response. Okay, so first, the image. What is the image that's here? This potter and the clay. It's pretty simple, though perhaps a little bit removed from our modern world. I mean, most likely, if you've, ever, if you've personally ever made pottery, right, or you've seen it being made, it was either in a class in college or a course that you took or you were at some sort of arts exhibition or something like that. And if you have spun pottery, homemade pottery in your house, it's likely a decorative piece, kind of set on a shelf somewhere, likely out of the reach of small children. But pottery in the ancient world was not like that. I mean, it was the Corel ware, the Tupperware of its day. I mean, it was, it was everywhere in the ancient world. So this is a very relatable image that, that God is using here. Jeremiah is told to go to the house of a potter where he finds the potter working at the wheel. Now, literally, it would have been two flat circular stones connected and mounted on a singular rod, and the potter would spin the stones, place the clay on top, and form the, form the pottery. Now, the issue, it tells us in verse 4 here, is that the pot that the potter was shaping is marred. Right? Other translations say it was, it's spoiled. Right? It didn't develop properly, and therefore it's in need of remolding, reshaping. So the potter takes it and forms it into, into something else. Now, I don't 
I mean, I don't know this personally because I've never done it, but, I, but I've read this is actually a fairly common occurrence when you're throwing the clay, as they say, right? This happens pretty frequently. The clay's spinning, and it doesn't take the right shape. And sometimes it has, I mean, it has nothing to do with the skill of the potter. It's just it's a recognition of what that particular lump of clay is like. And so the potter will squash it and start over again, perhaps altering his plan for what he was going to make based on what he now knows about the quality of the clay that he's dealing with. So that's the image. A potter at his wheel reshaping the marred clay as it seemed best to him, it says in verse 4. Right? Now, the meaning. Right? Listen to this again, verse 5. Right? Then the word of the Lord came to me, verse 6, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Right, so God explains the analogy then. He explains the image. He says, see the potter? See the clay? I'm the potter, Israel's the clay. That's the way it works. Now, initial implications. What does this imply uh, to us about who God is? If God is revealing himself to us here through, through, his, through his word, then what does it tell us? Well, first thing it tells us is that God is in complete control over his people. He, can, he controls what they will become, their, their destiny, just like the potter controls the clay, turns it into whatever pot he wants it to, to be. That's the first thing it shows us, God's sovereign control, his sovereign design over, over everything. But the second implication seems to be that because God is the potter, he has the right to squash the clay if he believes it to be marred. He has the right to reshape the misshapen. In fact, if you think about it another level down, if he's a good potter, in some sense, he has an obligation to do so. Right? Because, because to cast clay into a misshapen pot would be negligent on his part. He would not be a good potter. Right? And, then, and, and that's what God is threatening here to the people of Israel. Verse 11, we jump down, he says, you know, turn from your evil ways. Don't persist in what you are doing because if you do, it's not going to end well for you with the way that you're going. And, and, and that's where this image of the, of the potter, this analogy begins to get a little bit disturbing because God's pointing to Israel and he's saying, see the clay that's marred? That's you. Right? See what the potter's doing in squashing it? That's what can happen to you if you continue in your path of rebellion. Now, I get the if from what God says in verses 7 to 10. It doesn't appear as if this is a completely foregone conclusion in the way that it's presented here. God appears to lay out contingencies, possible ways in which the situation might go depending upon Israel's reaction to what he's warning. Because he says in verses 7 to 8, if any rebellious nation which he has threatened with squashing, or as it says in in verse 7, which he has announced will be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed. If any nation like that, in that situation, repents, right, then God will relent, it says in verse 8, and not inflict on it the squashing that he had originally planned. Now, at the same time, verses 9 to 10, God reverses the scenario, and he says, okay, in a nation that I have promised to bless, if that nation begins to rebel against my authority as the potter, 
In other words, if the clay begins to jump off the table and try to take control of what's going on, then I will revoke my blessing. Now, initially, this might seem a little confusing since God just finished saying that he's in complete control of all things. That's the image of the, the potter. And now it seems, in a sense, as if he's responding to the actions of Israel or the actions of some other nation. What does this mean about about God? Which is it? Is he in complete control over everything or is he responding to the decisions of of Israel and to us? But it's a false choice because God is actually both. And that's what he's trying to say here. See, there there are two characteristics. These are two characteristics of the same God that are described throughout the scriptures. On the one hand, God is transcendent. It's a a word theologians use to describe the fact that he is over everything. He's in complete control. He not only knows history, he fixes history from beginning to end. On the other hand, though, God is also presented to us as imminent. A a word that's used to describe his, his intimate connection, his nearness to us. He asks questions. He waits. He responds to our prayers. He he responds to actions. Now, how can both be true? Well, being sovereign and in complete control over everything does not mean that God is mechanical or that he exercises that complete control simply through divine decree, right? No, what it means is that God works through controlling all things through the means of secondary causes. Now, hang with me. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the, from the 1600s in, in England, is actually very helpful in summarizing this for us. Now, I'll, let me read just a, a portion of it. I'll try to clean up some of the old English a little bit. But essentially, it says this. It says, As it relates to the foreknowledge and the decree of God, all things happen immutably and infallibly. That is, they happen without change and without error. Right? Yet, By the same providence, that is, by the same sovereign decree of God, God orders those things to happen according to the nature of secondary causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God, in his ordinary providence, makes use of means. All things happen immutably and infallibly, yet he orders them to happen according to the nature of secondary causes. Do you get that? God has a perfect an unchangeable will that he orders to occur by the means of secondary causes. The choices that we make, good and bad. The things that happen according to the laws of nature that he has established. God works through those things. But does this make him less sovereign then? No, actually, if you think about it, because God works like that, because he works through secondary causes... And not just simply by decree, that actually makes him more sovereign, not less. Think about it like this, is an analogy to which I can, I can relate. Any father can exercise a relatively high degree of sovereignty in determining the, the, the destiny of a very young infant, right? If you say to him, sit here, <laughs> that's where the infant's going to stay, Right? It, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of sovereignty to be able to, to, to tell an infant to just simply stay there in a, in, a, in a single place. But it takes a much higher degree of, of sovereignty if one were to effectively try to do that with an older child. 
right? Because now you're talking about exercising authority through certain situations, through how they react to situations. It's, or it's like a brilliant leader of, a, of an organization or a company who controls what's going on in that organization, throughout that organization, even though that person is not actually the one making the actual decisions. Now, those analogies break down, of course, if you push them, because no parent is able to guarantee the results of what happens with their children. No brilliant leader is able to guarantee the outcome of a a company or an organization. But imagine if God were able to accomplish his perfect, unchangeable will, not by simple decree, but by the means of our own choices, emotions, and reactions. I mean, I know it's, it's hard to kind of conceive how that would happen but if that but 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 if that were true then we'd have to grant that if that were the case that what we would have is a truly sovereign god he's the potter that's what the image means that's point number two now what's the reaction to israel of israel to a god like that point number three the resistance and this is actually a short one because israel's reaction is pretty short look at verse 12 They will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. So that's how it's going to be. It's like a child who looks up at his father after the father has patiently and clearly explained the concept of parental authority, clearly and patiently explained the wrongness of the child's behavior, clearly and patiently explained the consequences of persisting in that behavior, And the child looks up at the father and says, no, me do, right? God's call for Israel to repent and to turn back to him so that he might relent of of the judgment, it's met with stubborn resistance. They simply say, we like our plan better than we like yours. We'll do what we want. Now, before we move on, Right, from that. We, we can't just write this off as a problem with ancient Israel because we do the same thing. Right, even though it's really hard to admit. I confess, I like the wise father, rebellious child analogy. Right? It's easy to relate to. Why? Because, of course, in the analogy, I'm the wise father. Right? And as you hear that analogy, I'm sure what's, what probably goes through your mind first is immediately thinking of someone you know that you have given advice to that's really stubborn that doesn't listen to that advice, right? Because we like being the wise mom, the wise counselor, the wise teacher, the wise friend. But when we do that, when we immediately jump to that place, we miss the entire point of the analogy because we're not the wise one in the story, right? We are, we're the one that looks God in the face and says, no, me do, right? We do that when, when, we, when we look at his commands about sexuality and we think they're optional. Right? We, do, we do it when we, think that we, when we choose the easy way out of relationships because resolving conflict is hard. Right? We do it when we assume that the money we earn belongs to us and then we get to choose if there's anything left over what we're going to do with it. Right? It's no use. We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. That's the resistance. Now, then, appropriately, the response. God will bring judgment. Look at verses 16 and 17. Their land will be laid waste. 
an object of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. Like a wind from the east, I will scatter their enemies, scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. Now, it isn't specifically stated, but this is almost certainly referring to the imminent destruction of Judah, Jerusalem by Babylon. And it's terrible. I mean, it sounds terrible, right? Now, is this appropriate? Right, back, back to our, kind of our original question. Is, is God, not that we get to really judge, but that's, that's the question that kind of springs to mind. Is this really appropriate reaction? You know, in, in military and in diplomatic situations, you may have, they're, always used, they're always throwing around this term, proportional response, right? And what it's basically saying is, okay, in a, in a particular diplomatic or military situation, is the response appropriate given the, given the situation? Is it proportional? Right? And many people, or before you really think about it, right, would look at something like this that God's doing here, and they'd say, I'm not really, I'm not really sure that it is proportional. I mean, it might be appropriate, but this seems, I mean, this might seem a little bit severe, seem a little bit harsh. And the reason why I think we do that is because we, we tend to think of God's reaction in, in the same terms as we think of human relations. We think of a, a kind of a, a situation that we might be accustomed to. So, for example, when I worked at Sunoco, if my boss were to come to me and tell me to do something, and I look him in the eye and I say, no, I don't really like that plan, I'm going to do it my way. Right, what would be the reaction of the, of the boss? Well, I mean, it would start with verbal reprimand. And, you know, I mean, if I persisted, then probably a, you know, a formal note in my personnel file. And if I really persisted, then ultimately it would end up in me being fired, my dismissal. Right? But, but my home wouldn't be laid waste. Right? I wouldn't be scattered before my enemies in the day of my disaster. Right? If that were to happen, you'd say, okay, I, I mean, that seems a little bit disproportional. But David Platt, who's the, the president of the International Missions Board for the Southern Baptist Convention, he suggests that maybe the reason why, maybe we should think about it a little bit differently. He says, he says the penalty for sin is not so much determined by the magnitude of our sin, but by the identity of the one who is sinned against. Let me say that again. The penalty for sin is not so much determined by the magnitude of our sin, but by the identity of the one who is sinned against. And then David Platt, tells, he tells this story. He's got a friend by the name of Azim, who comes from a, who's an Arab follower of Jesus. And, and Azim was in his country, and he was riding in a taxi one day, and he was telling the taxi driver about Jesus. And they were having a discussion about heaven and hell and eternal punishment and whether it's appropriate or not. And the, dri- the taxi driver said to Azim, he said, you know, I think, like, I'll probably spend a little bit of time in hell to kind of pay for my sins, but then I'm going to go to, I'm, I'll go to heaven after that because, after all, the magnitude of my sin isn't all that great. And Azim said, hey, can I, can I ask you a question? The taxi driver said, sure, go ahead, ask me a question. And Azim said, if I slapped you across the face, what would you do? The taxi driver said, well, I'd probably throw you out of my taxi. So said, Okay. So let me ask you another question. If I were to just go up to someone on the street and slap him in the face, what do you think would happen? The taxi driver said, well, he would probably go get his friends and then beat you up. And Azim said, okay. He said, now, if I were to go up to a policeman on the street and slap him in the face, 
what do you think would happen? He said, well, then you would definitely get beat up and then you'd be shown, thrown in jail. Azim said, okay. He said, now one last question. If I were to go up to the king of this country and slap him in the face, what do you think would happen? The taxi driver kind of awkwardly laughed and said, <laughs> then you would die. See, and Azim made his point. He said, see, you see, the severity of sin's punishment is always a reflection of the position of the person who is sinned against. Now, do you see? If that's true, then we are significantly under, understating, underestimating the severity of our sin against God. God's, God's response is very appropriate. And he is perfectly justified in turning his back and walking away as he brings disaster upon us. Because he is the ultimate that we are turning our back on him. So where's the hope? I mean, is there nothing further to, to say? Is there anything hopeful about this image of the, the potter and the clay? I mean, admittedly, in what I just read, the situation seems pretty bleak for Judah here in Jeremiah 18. But, but see, we, we can never read a passage of the Bible like this outside of its context from the rest of the Bible in isolation from the rest of the, the larger biblical narrative. And that's critical because we as Christians, what should, what should immediately come to mind when we consider the fact, this image of potter and clay, is that about 600 years later, the potter would actually become the clay. Right? When, when God becomes a man in the person of Jesus, he becomes the clay. It's the ultimate reversal of, of roles. And, and not just in the sense that Jesus assumes a human body and therefore he's made of the same substance, he's made of the same clay that we are. No, it, in the sense that he becomes the clay in the full sense of the image of Jeremiah 18. He becomes the clay so that he can take our place on the potter's wheel. So that he takes the squashing that we deserve. Now, the only thing is, Jesus wasn't marred or misshapen. Right? His pot was perfect. But when he dies on the cross, God turns his face from him so that he would no longer need to turn it from us. Right? And what that means is that there are now two options before every human being. Contingencies, if you will. And when God comes in verses 7 and 8 and he offers mercy to anyone who repents of his sin... And, and turns to God, then what he's doing is he's inviting us to consider that there are actually two ways, to use the language of, of verse 17, two ways for God to show us his back. Right? He can either show us his back in judgment as he turns away from us and leaves us to the consequences of our rebellion, or he can show us his back covered in scars from a Roman whip because he is a savior who came to endure the punishment that we deserve. Now, which do you choose? And do you see what this does to the supposed dilemma of God's justice that we started with? See, when we challenge God to come in, to come in judgment, we challenge God's right to come in judgment against sin, we're actually asking the wrong question. Right? We shouldn't be asking, why should this happen to us? We should actually be asking, why should this happen to him? Why would the potter become the clay 
to take our place on the wheel. There's several theological reasons that are very important, but let me just, let me just conclude with one very practical one. Right? The potter becomes the clay to take the place of the clay because the potter loves the clay. Right? Your relationship with the potter is not an impersonal one. Every piece of pottery is imprinted with the unique design of the one who shaped it, literally his fingerprint. And if that's true, if it's true that he loves us so much that he was willing to become the clay, then we have every reason to fully surrender ourselves, our lives, our health, our jobs, our families, our, our, our futures, surrender them into his hands. As I was studying this passage over the past week, I discovered it's actually almost impossible um, to preach on this text and not mention Adelaide Potter, Pollard. Adelaide Pollard. Um, you you kind of have to, as I looked at other people who had, who had talked about this sermon. Adelaide Pollard was born in 1862. And her greatest desire growing up and into early adulthood was to be a missionary in Africa. That's what she wanted to do. That's what she desired with all of her heart, to go to Africa as a missionary. The only problem was she couldn't get there. She tried and she tried, and, but she couldn't raise the money. It just, it just wasn't coming. She was, and she wasn't able to, to go to the point where it began to cause a lot of frustration with her relationship with God. She began to question him. Why? I mean, this is a good thing. I want to do this for you. Why won't you let this happen? Why won't you let me go to Africa? And so one night in 1902, this 40-year-old woman, discouraged and depressed because her life isn't going the way that she had thought it should go, goes into a, a prayer meeting with some other Christian women. And at that meeting, an older woman prays, Lord, it doesn't matter what you bring into our lives, just have your way with us. And Adelaide Pollard, Pollard said, that was penetrating her. So she goes home, and she opens her Bible, and she begins to meditate on Jeremiah 18, verses 3 and 4. Right? I am the potter, and you are the clay. And she writes the hymn that goes, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. I am the potter, thou art the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. Now, I don't know for you, but what, what's your Africa? <laughs> This morning, right? What, what are you asking God to do in your life? What are you, what, what's happening to you where you're questioning his love and wisdom? I don't know for you. But if you want the freedom and the comfort that only comes from surrendering yourself to God as the perfect potter, then you can pray that prayer with Adelaide. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Search me and try me, master, today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now, as in thy presence, humbly I bow. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a God who is in complete control of all things, that you design good for us. But Lord, help us to take seriously the challenge that you put before us, the punishment, the judgment that is rightfully deserved if we persist in our own way. And so, God, we ask that you would have your own way with us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.